The Department of the Navy's commitment to being a data-centric organization, that's now in question. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks elevated the idea of data-centric more than 18 months ago. But a recent Navy decision to downgrade its chief data officer has sparked concerns about the Navy's short-term information management efforts. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers this development, and he joins me now. And Jason, there's some brand new breaking news on this whole CDO data-centric front, isn't there? There is, Tom. In fact, we've learned that Aaron Weiss, the Department of Navy's chief information officer, is leaving after more than three years. We've learned through, uh, we've obtained the email he sent internal staff that his last day will be March 17th. Now, uh, Mr. Weiss has been in that position, as I said, since about 2019, and he's made a huge, huge impact on the Navy, really modernizing their infrastructure, modernizing their efforts, bringing in new technology, really to make data this centerpiece of everything they're going to do, which is why the other news we're going to talk about, Tom, is is a little strange. It, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Right. And that news is the moving of the Navy's chief data officer kind of down a notch in, in organizational civilian ranking. Absolutely. And what we've learned is that what the Navy decided to do is to eliminate the CDO role as a senior executive service position an SES. Now they still, they say, will have a CDO role, somebody who will fit into the roles and responsibilities. They have an acting CDO who's what they call an HQE, a highly qualified expert, but they are not an SES. And what's interesting, Tom, here is for years and since since 2019, when Tom Sasala took over that role, he's been an SES. He's been in that role, done a lot of really smart, good work. So it's a little disconcerting to a lot of folks who I've talked to about why they would, one, remove it from an SES role, and two, why would they push Tom out the door? Again, somebody who maybe isn't everyone's friend, but definitely has been uh, well-respected and, and, and highly thought of across the community. Yeah, I've spoken to him for a couple of interviews, and he knows his stuff. Do we know where he went? Tom ended up going to the Army's Office of Business Transformation. He's the deputy director there. But what they were trying to do is push him out to San Diego. And again, Tom, this is the second part of the story that you'll find on federalnewsnetwork.com, which is regarding the way they treated Tom and the way they you know, took someone who was an SES. And yes, you can move SESs wherever you want, but it's rare that you say to somebody, you know what, we're going to move you across the country and you don't have a choice. And I think that's part of what many people see this as a punitive approach to, if you will, getting Tom to move to a new job. Now, Tom, you and I have been around long enough to know that you know, people don't get along. Not everyone gets along with their management, but there are ways to treat people. And, and I think what I've learned from my reporting is it, it just wasn't done well or right. And I think that's part of the story here about how they look at data and they make the importance of data. Right. So not having that specific CDO title in an SES person, I mean, there's a Sasala issue perhaps, but there's also a strategy issue for data centricity, sounds like, for the Navy you're absolutely right. And this is that's the bigger issue here, Tom, because what's going on is they've had someone, they have a very small chief data officer office. There's only about four people now with six contractors supporting them. But as you know, Tom, data is everything. It's from the joint all domain command and control to the JADC2 project to Project Overmatch to a host of other initiatives, including things like creating trustworthy data for the Jupyter platform that then will be moved in, that data will be moved into the Advana platform that goes across all of DOD. So all of those programs will be 
impacted by having one less person and one less leader in that role. And then there's the usual stuff, Tom, like weekly strategy meetings and data governance boards that all really are important to getting, again, these programs and initiatives down the right path, making sure data is connecting those dots that we always like to talk about. There is no plan from what I've been told to backfill Sasala's day-to-day roles and responsibilities. And again, this goes back to Aaron Weiss. He, my understanding is he has not had a plan or does not have a plan to, to address these issues. And now obviously he's walking out the door. So he's leaving a lot of this to his uh, principal deputy, Jane Rathbun. Interesting if he ends up with the army too, but we don't know that yet. But yeah, I think what you said about JADC2 and jointness in general, it's all data centric and the ability to fight the wars they see in the future the whole cloud migration strategy that DOD has been pursuing on 50 different fronts, that all, again, gets around to data. So it is a little bit puzzling. Do we know anything about else about what the, what the Navy is planning on the data front? So the Navy has told me that they, of course, you know, think data is very important. It's a key to their mission areas. It's key to really finding success. None of that is surprising here. They did name Duncan McCaskill, the chief data analytics officer, as the acting CDO. Now, what's interesting about this, Tom, again, I went to Navy more than a month ago with a set of 10 questions. They came back and only answered three of them. Most of those questions were around how we're using data. What's the impact of not having a CDO? And they really didn't give me much more than just say it's very important to us, which you kind of expect that. But when I asked about, well, who is the acting CDO? And they said, well, we don't have one, but Duncan McCaskill is going to have the roles and responsibilities of the CDO. Then they came back to me a few days later and said, well, actually, he is the acting CDO after all. But again, McCaskill's not an SES. He's a highly qualified expert. And the Navy told me they have no plans to advertise to fill that SES CDO role either. So again, it's a lot of head scratching about why they're making these decisions now when, again, DOD Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks made data one of her top priorities across the entire DOD. Why would you downgrade the CDO role in such a way that leaves more questions than answers. And what about industry? Have you heard any reaction? Because industry watches these things like you watch a small campfire being nurtured and any little change is important to industry. What have you heard reaction-wise? I've talked to several former DOD folks who still are close watchers of, of the community. And one is Terry Halverson, the former DOD and Navy CIO. He's now vice president for federal client development at IBM. And while he fully admits, listen, I'm not familiar with this Navy's decision, he did say it would be very surprising to cut the CDO at this time. He says, you know, in a big agency, it makes your data efforts definitely harder to get things done. You can lose focus on some of those big efforts. And if we believe data is king and the most valuable resource for any agency, then cutting a position like the CDO would be highly unusual. So again, not not really surprising what Halverson said, but he did offer kind of a little bit of insights from his role where, because, you know, he sat in Aaron Weiss's role at one time. The other thing he said is, is a lot of times, you know, you got to understand where the structure is and how you want to structure your, your office. So he said, maybe this is just a restructuring and, and something else will come out maybe further down the road of how they're going to treat data and how they're going to put someone in charge. But if you don't really have someone who's that belly button to push, you are at a disadvantage to create, again, that data centricity that Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks called for. All right. So Tom Sasala now on the wrong side of the blockchain. And then the other piece of this is the department's handling of that decision. 
to move Sasala to this new role. Correct. Now, they wanted to push him out to Nav War in San Diego. His whole life, his family's here, and they really didn't give him a choice. Now, Tom, for any SES, they can do that. You know, Any agency can move any SES anywhere they want. It's just unusual, but this really ties back to, and this is what I'm. my sources tell me, that they told Sasala that you're being moved out because the, the Navy is under congressional mandate, as is all DOD to eliminate the number of SES positions they have. They had to do this by 25% across the board by 2022. And it's one thing to say, okay, Tom, sorry, we're going to eliminate your position. Where do you want to go? And and what I'm told is there were dozens of openings in the National Capital Region that he potentially could have been put into as an SES. They didn't. They, they shipped him off. And in fact, the Naval Information Warfare Systems Command didn't even know he was coming until three hours before he was supposed to actually be there to report. The last thing Tom offered you is the way they treated him. Again, it goes back to they cut off his access to the Pentagon, requiring Sasala to be escorted around the building. They cut off his access to email and shared drives. Again, you can make change. You can reorganize your, your office the way you see fit. But there are ways to treat people. And, Tom, I just I think that is not a good sign for the Navy in terms of how they treated him. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out all that detail in his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with 
bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to 
be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we have been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 